Uh, welcome to the fourth episode of Breaching Extinction. Um, I'm here with Ellie Sawyer, who's going to be helping me um, interview today, and um, Deborah Giles, who works at the University of Washington and does work there with their Center for Conservation. She has her PhD from um, the University of California, Davis, in conservation biology, and she's here to tell us a little bit about her work. She also um, founded and is directing the research at uh, Wild Orca. It's her nonprofit, um, so super excited. <laughs> Um, so I actually didn't start uh, Wild Orca. Um, it, uh, I'm the science and research director oh, of my apologies. Yeah, Wild Orca. My partners, uh, Michael Hayes and uh, Anna Gullickson, started Wild Orca in 2014. Awesome. Um, so what is your role there? Um, my job, um, I like the way that I term it that makes most the most sense to me is that I do um, translational science. Okay. So I take the science that I'm involved in and that others are involved in, and I translate that um, into um, basically everyday uh, language and um, help explain uh, things like the findings or the statistics, things like that. So basically putting the science in the hands of policymakers and the public. That's really awesome that's yeah I think there's definitely a little bit of a gap sometimes and I found that when I was looking on your website that the information was really accessible and easy oh, great. so like it's helpful for I mean I'm somebody that has like a bachelor's degree but I found like you know other people that I've shown it to that don't have that they can understand it as well which is super awesome because I great. think we have that gap um, so can you tell us a little bit about like your experience with the southern residents and kind mm-hmm. of the different projects you've worked on with them mm-hmm. so I started in 2005 with the um uh, Soundwatch Boater Education Program, actually. It's a program of the Whale Museum. So I was a full-time intern in 2005 for that. That's kind of mm-hmm. where I got my, um, I'd say, professional career with whales um, started then. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, the woman that helped uh, found that program, Carrie Kosky, she's not with the program anymore, but I consider her my mentor uh, and really my first major teacher here. And she was phenomenal because she put me in touch with absolutely everybody that was doing anything at all with marine mammals and specifically killer whales. And so um, I learned from her and from Dr. Rich Osborne, um, also of the Whale Museum, basically how to code whale behavior. And that's what my interest was, is looking at um, uh, how vessel density, distance, and, and activities may or may not be impacting killer whale behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 2006, uh, I was hired by NOAA to do um, whale behavior mm-hmm. and whale tracking with a piece of equipment that I helped develop. Okay. Um, so it uh, uses land survey equipment coupled together to essentially get offset data points. Okay. So from a remote boat, my mm-hmm. boat, I'm able to lock in the latitude, longitude down to millimeter accuracy of wow. a focal animal, and then all of the vessels within a hundred, uh, sorry, a thousand meters of that of that focal animal. Wow. And so in 2000. Um, I piloted the research equipment and my question in 2006 on the NOAA boat, which mm-hmm. was great to be able to work with all those folks. And then in 2007 and eight, um, mm-hmm. I had my own research boat, um, taking my own data and, uh, and being with the whales and trying to answer questions about 
um, change in behavior based on activity wow. and distance of boats. And then in 2009, in order to get uh, a, a boat off the water, I ended up partnering um, with Dr. Sam Wasser. I became, uh, I, not partnering, really, I work for him. He's an amazing, uh, a big thinker mm -hmm. with regard to conservation biology issues. And uh, he pioneered the use of scat detection dogs to locate species, mm -hmm. um, both on the water and uh, on land. Um, so using rescue dogs to help find feces of endangered species. <laughs> and like, so, I can hear you talking about me. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I was really fortunate to be in the right place and um, have uh, boating skills to become the vessel captain for his project in 2009. Mm -hmm. And so I've been um, kind of the local lead on that project since then, still mm -hmm. working on that 10 years in now. And uh, last year we added... Um, uh, big killer whales or mammal-eating killer whales mm -hmm. to, the, to the repertoire of our dogs. Um, actually, technically, we've never found one, so we don't mm -hmm. have a sample to train the dogs on. Oh, okay. Um, but we're trying, so we do yeah. fluke follows. Our protocol is a little bit different for those. And then also humpback whales and mm -hmm. any other baleen whales that occur in the Salish Sea. Mm -hmm. um, so I do all of that during the summer months. And then... Um, I also have participated in the suction cup tag project, uh, which is a NOAA program, mm -hmm. uh, attaching suction cups to the whales. They stay on anywhere from uh, ideally a couple of hours or uh, a, a whole 24-hour mm -hmm. cycle. Um, the point of the study this year, I actually was not on that boat this year, all of mm -hmm. the, although they used my equipment for it, um, is to attach, attach the suction cup in the evening hours, oh. towards the evening hours, okay. so that they stay on overnight, so that we can get a better idea of what the whales are doing at night. Um, because uh, right now, uh, we believe that they are um, foraging more during the daylight hours, and we think that uh, they actually do use their eyeballs in the last moments of a prey capture. Wow. And if that is the case, if we are showing more uh -huh. um, foraging during the daylight hours versus evening hours, then uh -huh. that's a really clear management um, finding that can be um, given to NOAA, where maybe they would decide to, say, move some of the traffic the deep sea traffic that's so disruptive to get right. well echolocation, uh, move that to the evening time oh. so that they can maximize the amount of daylight hours where the whales might be wanting to and needing to forage. More. For sure. Um, how would the whale watch boats play into that? Um, the whale watch boats have been fairly regulated mm -hmm. um, pretty heavily at this point. That's what it seems like. <clears throat> yeah, and uh, my experience this year and even last year uh, but certainly this year, as the 300-yard um, law went into effect, the um, commercial whale watch boats just are not prioritizing watching southern residents. Mm -hmm. They may, uh, obviously, if they're there on the path to, say, watching big mammal-eating killer whales or mm -hmm. baleen whales, um, whale watch boats might stop and observe for a while, but it's not like it used to be at all. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, again, like we've had many days, although we haven't had that many days with southern residents right. this year, but of the few that we've had, there have been several where there's been no whale watch boats on, on scene. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't foresee um, it harming or hurting having the whale watch boats there or not. Mm -hmm. They're staying um, 300 yards away on the side and mm -hmm. also going less than seven knots. 
so yeah, with the um, Center for Conservation Biology mm-hmm. uh, Conservation Canines Program, mm-hmm. um, and so with that program, uh, we utilize uh, highly trained scat detection dogs mm-hmm. on the front of the boat to sniff out the mm-hmm. the whale poop. Um, I need to get in the habit of not saying killer whale poop because mm-hmm. until last, this year it's been just killer whale. But now we have gotten the permit um, mm-hmm. uh, amended to be able to take all the baleen whale mm-hmm. feces. So we have gotten two humpback samples, so nice. that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I also do, I teach a class at the Friday Harbor Labs, which okay. is a satellite campus for the University of Washington. So I teach a marine mammals of the Salish Sea class in the nice. springtime. Very fun. That's yeah. Awesome. That's awesome. So how do you guys train the dogs? Um, so <clears throat> we start off by um, having an older sample that mm-hmm. we've collected in a previous year. And we um, essentially, the idea is to um, couple that smell with the toy. Okay. So our dogs are all play motivated. They're okay. not food motivated. Nice. Um, yeah. Uh, and so these are dogs that are um, really, uh, really fixated on playing. Mm-hmm. Um, with Eva, she's a little bit of a different dog. She started out being my my own dog. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, for a number of different reasons, we ended up... Um, uh, just it worked out really well that mm-hmm. she already lived here and she had play drive and we were already bonded mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so um, uh, but essentially any dog that you're trying to train to, to do um, scat uh, sampling mm-hmm. um, that motivation has to be there mm-hmm. there are a lot of dogs where you could train the dog to, to find the smell mm-hmm. but if they're not motivated by something and in our case it's play then they just have no literally no motivation to go and find yeah. the thing and so it has to be this really nice pairing of highly motivated dogs that want to please you and or play mm-hmm. with their toy okay um, that's what Eba brings to this project and so we take that sample mm-hmm. and um, when we first started training her um, our lead trainer, uh, Julie, mm-hmm. and uh, our lead trainers, Julie and Tammy, came up. And the idea is to let her smell the smell and then immediately give her her toy. Nice. And play like crazy. Yeah. And that goes on maybe a couple times, maybe, you know, five, mm-hmm. ten times or something. At different places in the yard is what we did. Right. And uh, she got it right away. Like, nice. she knew Aww. what she was supposed to be doing. Well, then you hide that smell. Mm. You hide, and in our case, we got little, small um uh, cur jars okay. uh, with a mesh lid okay. and uh, with a southern resident killer whale scout in the bottom of that jar okay. and hid that around my property. Nice. And then basically let her go. Yeah. And she will, the, uh, the dogs are, uh, once you know what to look for, dogs are always actually orienting mm-hmm. themselves downwind. They're oh. always using wind to pick up different smells. Okay. Well, so that's what she did is she would, um, and I was clear and, and conscious, mm-hmm. conscious of placing the sample in a way that wind would come across the sample and bring it to her or at least come across the sample where she could run past it and smell it and go back to it. So basically that's what ends up happening. Like if this microphone is mm-hmm. the hidden sample, like uh-huh. hidden in grass, right? Um, I would let Eva go and she would run kind of back and forth through these zigzags down a pathway. And as soon as she would hit the sample, she do, turns right back into it. Oh, so basically wow. she's turning into the wind yes. at the strongest 
part of where that sample is uh-huh. is um, the scent cone is strongest. Okay. And so you take that then, and then you move it to the boat, which is the odd part mm-hmm. and the and the extra part. Mm-hmm. So people around the world are using scat dogs to mm-hmm. find everything you can imagine. Yeah. Um, very few are doing it in the marine realm. In fact, we're the only program that uses a scat dog in the marine. Yeah, realm. that's really cool. Um, that's really innovative. It is, and that yeah. sounds amazing for the kind of big ideas and, um, you know, putting it out there and saying, like, let's see if it'll work. Yeah. And, um, when he first started doing this, he was actually finding um, North Atlantic right whale feces mm-hmm. um, uh, with a, a, another um, a scientist. And the difference, though, is is that North Atlantic right whale poop is massive and mm-hmm. red and super stinky, really oily covers you know spaces bigger than this table right and uh you can see it from like a mile away and you can certainly smell it from a mile away mm-hmm. um killer whale feces is very different like mm-hmm. sometimes it's just the size of your pinky 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 fingernail wow teeny tiny that's tiny. insane that's because it's such a large animal yeah. that seems really unexpected um i can show you some pictures before we part um of just some different um mm-hmm. what different poop looks like but ideally southern resident killer whale poop is massive mm-hmm. massive like the size of a dinner plate sort of thing but mm-hmm. once you scoop that mm-hmm. it's a very thin dinner dinner plate oh, okay. once you scoop it it ends up actually being a fairly small amount of material okay um but we've gotten we've gotten massive samples that fill up multiple 50 mil vials which are about six inches tall or so Mm -hmm. um occasionally more in the past than now when there was more food here we would get these massive fatty you know really super nice fatty rich samples that would Mm -hmm. come to the surface and stay at the surface for a long time okay so basically the next step in the training process for the dog is we take that sample put it in a bowl float it on the water and drive away from it and then we drive you know initially a couple hundred meters um, and then orient the boat downwind so that the again the smell is coming across that sample and Eva or whoever is working we're working with will smell that and she has a change of reaction like her body changes oh my gosh going from like a relaxed calm like sniffing around to really intense like her tell is that she gets really stiff Uh uh-huh and then she'll just like stop like it becomes it's almost like uh in my mind everything goes quiet and still Mm -hmm. and so that's when you know i'm looking at her going okay she's on something and then as soon as she starts to really get the smell Mm -hmm. she began then her tail starts wagging Mm -hmm. she'll start licking her lips and as soon as we pass by that strongest part of the scent cone she'll turn into the wind she'll come back along the side of the boat Uh uh-huh or she'll crab walk along the boat as the scent is getting stronger and stronger. And then as soon as we lose it, it she'll come back to that side of the boat. And that basically tells us exactly where we need to turn wow. and where we need to focus our energy. And so it, it ends up being kind of this series of zigzaggy maneuvers right. into the scent cone uh-huh. like this until ultimately she brings us right up alongside the sample. That's it's insane. That's so Come cool. Here, She's so talented. Hi, Hi baby. Come here. She's so oh, cute. Oh, All yeah. stretch. Mm-hmm. I actually remember, I didn't read the, the study itself when it came out, but I do remember reading about it. And uh-huh. I said, like, I mean, can you kind of tell the listeners, like, what the importance of mm-hmm. feces is in yeah. the research? 
I know, but yeah, uh, yeah. So killer whale uh, or any kind of feces is a is it truly is um, this gold mine of information. Um, we started out originally. The original study was with uh, Sam's first grad student, um, Catherine Ayers, and she was looking at stress hormones in relation to um, different densities of boats, but also in relation uh, to the number of fish that are coming through the region. And so she was doing this um, uh, lag time of uh, Chinook salmon that were uh, headed for the Fraser River and basically being able to make some pretty decent predictions about the amount of salmon coming through this region where the sample, where the wow. whales had been the day before, uh, the, you know, the day that we collected. Um, it's about a 12-day, I think, if I remember right, um, 9 or 12. I can't remember. Don't quote me. Look it up. <laughs> the paper came out in 2012, Catherine Ayers. Um, but there's this lag time of several days, so you can get a pretty good idea of the fish that were um, around when the whale would have been eating, not yeah. pooping, but eating. Um, and so what that study looked at was um, uh, how... Is stress and nutrition, how are, they, how are they related? How are those different hormone levels related? And then how are both of those related to the number of fish available um, and then the number of vessels present? Mm-hmm. Um, and what that study found was that when the whales are getting enough to eat, I mean, there was a lot of things in that paper, but the upshot of it is is that uh, when the whales are getting enough to eat, the if effect of vessels is not evident. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So boats don't bother whales if they're getting enough to eat. The converse is also true, though. When they're mm-hmm. not getting enough to eat, we do, do see a stress, stress signature um, hormone related um, mm-hmm. to the presence of vessels, mm-hmm. and so again, ev- pretty much everything we're learning um, and really, really starting to, to dial in on is the fact um, that out of the all of the identified threats, mm-hmm. the lack of quality and quantity prey is by far the biggest threat to this population of, mm-hmm. of whales. Um, something that I, I've really been starting to say because it, it, it became clear to me at the beginning of this year that this wasn't clear to some people. Um, so uh, killer whales are like us. They're mammals. They need to eat every day to stay healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and they need to eat high-quality um, food and enough of it to, to thrive. So mm-hmm. not just survive but thrive. Um, they're not mammals like, say, humpback whales or gray whales that go through long periods of fasting every year. Mm-hmm. Killer whales are not like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is <clears throat> really important to uh, make sure that we're thinking about the quality and quantity of prey. Mm-hmm. Knock it off. <laughs> Eva's like, I want to talk about it, too. She wants to play with that the kid. The kids, yeah. Um making sure that we have enough high quality food throughout the whale's entire range throughout the entire year mm-hmm. is what's important and so so efforts on on different organizations parts to um to for example um take the snake river dams down to mm-hmm. to increase the the chinook abundance to to killer whales as well as to recover the salmon for the salmon sake mm-hmm. um, that's really important for the southern residents but that does not take care of their needs for the entire year mm. they don't eat uh you know that that was that those are runs that are incredibly important important in the winter and especially the early spring with those incredibly large salmon coming okay. back to that river um, we also need to be thinking as a species about what 
what do we do to recover the salmon throughout the whales the rest of their range? Right. For example, they don't they're not coming to their quote home inland waters, their summer core critical habitat in the inland waters here in the Salish Sea. They're right. not coming back here like they used to. And that's right. because there's not enough fish here. And those mm-hmm. those would have been fish bound for the Fraser River. Mm-hmm. And so efforts on the Canadian side and on uh, you know in fisheries management all of that needs to be taken into consideration um, for all the different runs throughout throughout the region. Okay, and uh, not enough discussion is going into that, in my opinion. Yeah, I like I've done some research on the dams and the different issues, and I didn't realize that it was a seasonal thing at yeah. all. Like, I'm honestly shocked to hear you say that. So, what do we like? Where do we focus the efforts for the summer salmon to come back in? Um, well, so that's going to be us working in tandem with our Canadian colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um, to to there's something like 500 culverts on the Fraser River. Oh wow! So although they don't okay. have dams like we do, they have diversion culverts um, that are that are essentially the same thing. They okay. block passage, and so um, working with our our Canadian colleagues to try and get a handle on what can be done in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, also, um, you know, something that my group has been talking a lot about. Um, our campaign is called the Fair Fisheries Campaign. Yeah. And um, in a nutshell, what that what what I, I've been saying is that um, I regard the Southern residents as the as the original for, foragers. They're mm-hmm. the original harvesters of Chinook salmon. They evolved over the course of hundreds of thousands of years to eat Chinook salmon. Um, we see that in their uh, in the way that they're where they go to f- look for food. Mm-hmm. The fact that they're they're in this region with hyperabundant numbers of pink salmon. For mm-hmm. example, every other year there's massive quantities of pink, although they have their own problems uh, at at different times. Southern residents don't see pink salmon as food. There's there's never been a fecal sample that shows pink salmon in their feces. There's never been a predation event where we've gone in or our car colleagues from NOAA have gone in and collected those samples mm-hmm. that show that they eat pink salmon. Mm-hmm. It's just not in their repertoire of what to eat, and neither is seal or right. or sea lion mm-hmm. or something like that. I get asked that question all the time, mm-hmm. like, well, they're super smart animals. Why don't they just eat mm-hmm. the marine mammals that are abundant out mm-hmm. there? And the answer to that is is that they didn't evolve to eat them. They evolved over the course of hundreds of thousands of years, and they've speciated from their uh, their mammal eating cousins, mm-hmm. uh, the so called uh, you know transients who yeah. aren't so transient anymore. Um, researchers are really trying to get away from that terminology and talk about Bigs killer whales mm-hmm. um, um, in honor of Mike Big. Um, who really was the, the godfather of, of, of killer whale research early, in the early days mm-hmm. um, and a, you know, a, a colleague and mentor of uh, everybody that came after him, Mike Ford and uh, John Ford uh, from Canada, Ken Balcom from here, and mm-hmm. you know, even myself, even though I didn't get to, to meet him, I was, always want to throw his name in there because he really is the, um, was the one that showed us that we didn't have to mark up the whales uh, yeah. with knives. Uh, we could... We could look at them, look at their saddle patches and tell them apart. Anyway, um, 
the southern residents are are these obligate fish eaters that are preferentially going after the fattiest, the biggest and fattiest fish out there, which mm-hmm. are the Chinook. Mm-hmm. And so um, to, to recover them is going to take uh, multiple, multiple different angles of attack, if you will. Um, d- uh, removing dams that are not, uh, not uh, needed and, right. and pose the biggest threat to salmon recovery, I think is important. And in my opinion, the Snake River dams fall into that category. Mm-hmm. I do believe the dams will come down. I think it's incredibly important mm-hmm. that we work with the people on the east side to come up with solutions yeah. um, to, to um, answering some of the problems that they will face. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not okay with just uh, you know banging my fists and saying, take down the dams, right. take down the dams. We need mm-hmm. to take down, down the dams thoughtfully and uh, and with other people's uh, needs in, in, in mind. Absolutely. And okay. I think it can be done and it needs to be done. Yeah. Um, but we also need to be looking at fisheries practices. Mm-hmm. You know, as the original harvesters, the southern residents um, should be um, allocated a portion of the total allowable catch that is divvied up mm-hmm. currently only by human consumers. Wow. So there's this um, ocean conditions, this unexp- uh, uh, you know, un um, this kind of f- figure that gets um, lumped in there for mm-hmm. everything that happens in the ocean that we have little control over. Right. And predation by mammals is somewhat factored into mm-hmm. that into that into that um, part of the pie. Yeah. But ultimately, that's not good enough right. if we're trying to recover a known population of whales. Yeah. We need to be doing incredibly tightly focused spatial and temporal overlays mm-hmm. of where the whales could be. Right. Not necessarily where they are, because the whales are where the food is right, right. now, but it's not necessarily where they should be. Right. Uh, we need that, that kind of goes back to where these historic river runs mm-hmm. um, in space and time mm-hmm. that would be um, available to the southern residents. And that's the kind of fisheries management we need to get to, recognizing that the whales' needs... Um, have to be factored in. Yeah. Um, and in my opinion, it needs to be factored in um, in a way that does not impinge upon treaty rights, mm-hmm. tribal rights, um, because that's a huge, that's another issue which is, is, uh, is as important um, to, to, to stay f- mindful of. You know, the, the treaty tribes gave up everything in order to retain the right to fish in their usual and accustomed territory mm-hmm. um, and uh, that's an important thing that cannot be overlooked it can't be brushed right. aside um, the whales also need to be able to forage in their usual and accustomed territory mm-hmm. um, and that's what I'm talking about when I say coming up with a way to do space time overlaps with returning fish from essentially southeast Alaska to Monterey, California. Mm-hmm. And as much as that's uh, that's a, going to be a hard pill to swallow for a lot of fisher folk, fishermen, mm-hmm. um, uh, and fisheries managers, mm-hmm. if we're serious about wanting to recover the southern residents, that is going to be the only way that we're going to do it, right. is coupling fisheries management changes mm-hmm. from Alaska all the way to Monterey when, where, and how we fish, stopping the immense amount of bycatch of Mm -hmm. Chinook salmon that we catch when we're trying to catch other things and or catching smaller Chinook salmon uh, ages two, three, 
you know, one, two, and three-year-olds when we're really targeting four- and five-year-olds. Right. That sort of thing. And then also looking at habitat restoration Mm -hmm. is insanely important. We can take down the dams or, or, you know, uh, do all these other things. And ultimately, if we don't have um, salmon spawning habitat, we're still dooming wild chinook salmon, right. uh, you know, to the to the you know fate of the dodo of the dodo bird and the, the passenger pigeon. Right. Um, it's going to take a multi pronged approach mm-hmm. um, to recover these animals. Yeah. You know, we've done a lot of uh, focused a lot of attention on the. Um, small vessels, Mm -hmm. um, you know, pushing boats back to 300 yards on the side and 400 in front and back. Um, I think ultimately that'll be beneficial to the whales. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, um, I'd like to focus on some other things now. Yeah. I'd like to focus on fisheries more. Mm -hmm. We, um, in this last legislative session, we passed some of the most um, progressive uh, laws with regard to toxicants mm-hmm. um, in this state. I'm I'm proud of that um, of of our voters and our legislators for pushing that through. Um, more could be done for toxicants and making sure that we're um, not polluting the waters because ultimately anything that the whales are ingesting, we also are anybody that eats fish out of mm-hmm. these waters. Um, and then you know so the 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 the, the triptych you know the the Toxicants, the boats, and the prey; mm-hmm. those are the three uh, the the main identified threats. <clears throat> and fisheries management has has gotten a bit of a of a slide. Yeah, they've gotten I, a bit of a pass mm-hmm. in, since the whales got listed. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, Noah, Noah's in this really interesting position of being responsible for recovering. Both uh, anadromous fish like mm-hmm. salmon, right, and the whales that rely on them. Mm-hmm. So Noah, mm-hmm. being under the Department of Commerce, is kind mm-hmm. of an interesting thing in a, in and of itself. Um, Noah is responsible for recovering salmon, but I think that there are some good things happening. There are some. There's a, a stakeholder uh, meeting that the governor found seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars for. Um, to uh, have non-biased um, consulting groups. I think there's like That's four awesome. of them. That's um, awesome. Come together, and um, they're interviewing people, stakeholders that um, uh, have something to say about the Snake River dams and um, interviewing people that have uh, a stake in that and um, asking for all of the science to be put on the table. Mm-hmm. And then essentially they're going to wade through it and uh, not come up with recommendations, but more just present like this is the these are the findings here. Right. These are the findings over here with regard to all of the different issues that mm-hmm. are involved in the dams, like the economics right. and um, the environmental impacts mm-hmm. and fish related issues, specifically whale related issues. And, right. And it's going to be the first time that it's really. Um, I think it's going to be um, ideal because, again, they're not stakeholders. Right. They're, yeah. They're reviewing the science and providing the science on both sides with regard to everything. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so uh, I'm I'm excited by that. Yeah, that's that's really awesome because I I definitely agree with what you're saying. Like you, you know if we take the dams down, we have to be mindful of the people. And I've read a couple different, like, economic valuations or different recommendations that people have put out there, and they're all like, oh, we can put, like, you know, the money that is saved back into, like, education throughout the state. And I'm like, you know, we should put that back into those communities so they can set up, like, you know, different economic, you know, things mm-hmm. so that they can continue to sustain themselves. Um, mm-hmm. But it's definitely tough, and we have to, I think we just got to reach that compromise, and for some reason that's been hard. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Well... I think one of the biggest problems is is that dialogue, real direct dialogue, was not started early enough mm-hmm. between West Side and East Side, mm-hmm. um, you know, advocates for and against the dams. Mm-hmm. And I think if we had done that, that would have been better. Like form, you know, working groups, form um, uh, groups of people that uh, feel comfortable and confident. I definitely think that you make a good point that that dialogue really wasn't started and I think there as a result has been a lot of animosity yeah. between the two factions yeah um, Eric and I do talk about it a lot and mm-hmm. we we definitely think that if a lot of the people from the east side came out and saw the whales for themselves and made that yeah. emotional connection right um, and conversely I mean yeah. it was if, really good for Erica yeah, to go I, out to those snake dams and see them for herself yeah because yeah. like you can definitely see how like that is ingrained in their community and like I do still think that they need to come down I think that we can resolve it like we just mm-hmm. you know I, I understand that people don't want to change their culture and their way of life that the whales have had to adapt and you know that's what we all do as all kinds of species we all adapt and we just have to continue to do that and not be you know like push against it mm-hmm. so it's like it's definitely hard but I think it can be doable mm-hmm. we just have to like you know make an effort and reach a compromise and like I would love to find some kind of way to get people from the east side out here. And then people, yeah. you know, here from out there as well so we can all understand one another because it's not just, you know, one-sided. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These, when we think about the southern residents and the evolution of this subspecies, it did take hundreds, hundreds of thousands of years. You mm-hmm. know, there has not been a common mating between the mammal eaters that occur here mm-hmm. um, and really any other population mm-hmm. of killer whales on the planet for 700,000 years. That's mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah. Um, and so, this, you know, the southern residents and their nearest cousins don't even speak the same language. Yeah. They have had... Um, you know, again, hundreds of thousands of years to evolve. And then you think about how fast we humans have changed their environment. We're talking about in the, the, the lifespan years, yeah. of my grandparents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the last hundred years, mm-hmm. we have entirely altered everything about mm-hmm. about the whale's food web. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely everything the quality and the quantity of the prey the toxicity of the prey and the and the very water that they're swimming through mm-hmm. the noise look at AIS just google AIS mm-hmm. tra- marine traffic mm-hmm. and look at how absolutely it's it's honestly it's a wonder any marine mammal can find anything yeah it's so noisy out there and right. there's so many physical vessels mm-hmm. on the planet moving about our oceans now that's all in the last hundred years, mm-hmm. that's, uh, yeah. and so that's that's basically a long lifespan of a killer whale. Yeah, and so um, we think about that, and then and then some people say, well, you know, they're smart; they should just adapt. 
Um, well, I, you know, it doesn't what? work like that. It's generational, it, like adaptation, mm-hmm. not just like within one lifespan of you know a couple whales. Yeah, or that, you know, couple whales. It's crazy to think about. I mean, that's basically Granny's lifespan. Yeah, like yeah. she saw all of that. Exactly. I thought about that a lot when that's she died. Nuts. It is nuts. I'd nuts be to like. Too bad we can't talk to whales, because I would love to hear her perspective on things. Um, but obviously, you know, we don't have the technology or capabilities for that at the moment. Um, one of the questions, because I see our ferry is coming in, so we're going to have to wrap up. But one of the questions I like to ask people is, like, how have the whales impacted your life? Or, like, what have you learned from killer whales that you carry into your day? I When I think about the, the killer whales... Um, I actually think of them as a as a, a better better form of us. Mm-hmm. Like they they are more uh, in tune with their environment, and they're more in tune with each other, and they're family oriented, and they cooperatively hunt and share food, and they take care of their sick mm-hmm. and dying and dead. Yeah, and um, and I I just really I view them as. Um, just an amazing, unique species on the planet mm-hmm. that um, that we have done almost everything in our power to completely wipe from the face of this yeah. earth. And um, so that's what I see as my job. My life job is to try and um, hopefully do the research that helps inform us about what's happening and, mm-hmm. and give ideas about what to do next. And also just put the whales in into the publics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know things like this podcast, putting, mm-hmm. put, getting more uh, people invested in their well-being, and uh, because ultimately, if we lose them, we lose a, a, I think a critical part of what makes us human. Yeah, which is to, the the ability to to see and appreciate um, the value of other cultures. Yeah, because ultimately, that's what they are. They're a unique culture of beings Absolutely. that deserves to be here as much as we do. I one hundred percent agree. I think that's like. I love to travel, and that's, like, one of my favorite things in life is just, like, seeing how different people live. And it is so cool to see that so vibrantly in these animals and, like, in the bigs as well. And, like, you know, I'm sure there are so many other species that have cultures like that that we just don't study. We've just been drawn to these whales, so we know that. But, yeah, they definitely deserve our attention. So, well, thank you for taking the time to talk with us and letting us meet little Eba. Thank you so much. Yes, we had fun. Thank you.